بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala we seek blessings on the Prophet peace be upon him all right we are continuing our exploration of of this particular section of Khalid Abul Fadl's book reasoning with God and we're in the section on what is Islamic law who would like to volunteer to read with me interrupting at various semi-random points Again, these parts, these sections, we're going to go through slowly, and then we're going to go through the latter sections fast again. Who wants to show us their powerful reading skills? Anyone? I don't want to start. Me? Yes, please. Where? See where it says, what is Islamic law? Yeah. What is Islamic law? The Islamic legal system consists of legal institutions, determinations, and practices that span a period of over 1400 years, arising from a wide variety of cultural and geographical contexts that are as diverse as Arabia, Egypt, Persia, Bahara, Turkey, Iberia, Nigeria, Mauritiana, Mali, Indonesia, India, and China. Not too bad. So that first place, could you repronounce the repronounce this first location? Arabia. <laughs> Arabia. Okay. Yeah, no, the status says it differently, so it's got me confused. Okay, fair enough. And then uh, the the fourth place, Bukhara. And y'all know where Bukhara is? Bukhara is Central Asia. So yeah, that general area, Central Asia. Uh, what's Iberia? Spain, Portugal. Spain, yeah. Mauritania is is essentially North Africa area, and I think you pronounce everything like uh, the rest of us do. Okay, please continue. Importantly, what is called Islamic law is not contained in a single or few books. Islamic law is found in an enormous corpus of volumes that document the rulings, opinions, and discourses of jurists over the span of many centuries. Despite the contextual and historical contingencies that constitute the complex reality of Islamic law, rather paradoxically, the Islamic legal legacy has been the subject of widespread and stubbornly persistent stereotypes and oversimplifications. And it's okay, like- Wait, wait, wait. Did we read this last time? I don't know. Actually, uh, we did. I'm sorry, I'm gonna ask you to jump forward the difference between Islamic law and Muslim law. The main thing to, to summarize that, that previous section that, that Adil was reading with such a beautiful, beautiful accent. Is, is the point that this thing that we call Islamic law is it's ginormous. And so it includes the primary sources, the Quran, the Hadith. It includes the, the history of scholars, so to speak, in a Muslim ivory tower, you know, deriving reasoning and, opi uh, and opinions. It also includes the whole history of judges and their opinions in various Muslim empires across the world for, for over a thousand years. And then also includes the modern um, uh, rulings of judges and such and so it's this huge huge thing and so that then necessitates the understanding the difference between uh, Islamic law and Muslim law sorry about that why don't you read that yeah yeah I remember you're talking about, about like the tradition and discourse over time yeah the difference between Islamic law and Muslim law much of the secondary literature tends to either lump the two, especially when dealing with the pre-modern era, or assume a dogmatic and artificial distinction that is fundamentalistic in nature. Okay, so a couple of big terms here. Uh, anybody know what we mean when we're saying secondary literature? 
I know. Uh, so when uh, the, the, like it's like a secondary source, not a primary source, right? Thank you for your profound knowledge of, of the English language. <laughs> so, so primary literature would be the actual original material in history. So for example, the Quran and the Hadith would be considered primary literature. Primary literature would also be whatever the scholars in our history have said. So the actual original source material. Secondary literature would be academic scholars in the university writing about those things. That's secondary literature. So there isn't really any tertiary literature beyond it's basically primary or secondary. Primary is like if I do if I was doing the history of France, I'm looking at the original documents in whether it's the founding of the constitution or the rulings of the kings. Secondary literature would be me as a as a professor uh, over here writing about that stuff. That's secondary literature. And then you know, let's see. Pre-modern era we've spoken about, that's essentially the period prior to the 1500s. And we said back in that era, God was at the center of everything. Uh, honey, were you about to say something? Yeah, you said it's Quran and Hadith and also what the scholars wrote at the time. So at so, the time when? So, so think of pr uh, primary literature as the actual Muslim writings. So it's the Quran, the Hadith. Um, that would be the most primary, primary literature. But in terms of when we're using these terms in the academics, primary and secondary, we're basically saying primary literature is the actual source material that we're researching as academics. Secondary literature would be the journal articles that we're writing about that stuff. So would there be like a time period that we draw the line? Like, okay, after this, everything is secondary because now it's writing about the scholars? No, it's, it's more who's doing the writing. Okay. And so the writing would be, if it's the practitioners, it would be primary literature. If it's, so if it's even it's, now, if somebody at Al-Azhar is writing something, it's going to well, be primary? Yes. If, okay. if the scholar is writing a fatwa. Fatwa. Right? Okay. There you so go. that would be a primary, a primary source in terms of Islamic law. And then let's say somebody at Loyola is now writing a paper on that scholar in secondary literature. It's a small distinction, uh, but it becomes relevant here because because Khaled Double Fadl is writing both as a person who would produce primary literature as well as someone who would be writing secondary literature. So this book, uh, what would you say this book is? Is this book primary literature or secondary literature? Secondary. No, it's primary because yeah. he's in from self knowledge. That's that's the challenge. It's sort of both. Good. And because he, he said early on that he's writing as himself, as a Muslim, technically this is primary literature. A book review about this book would be secondary literature. Yeah. Again, it comes down to who's doing the writing, which also means what forum are they writing in. And so he says much of the secondary literature tends to lump either the two, Islamic law and Muslim law, together, especially when dealing with the pre-modern era. And so this gets really important that uh, what would we definitely call Islamic law? That would be what the prophet, peace be upon him, and his generation are doing, right? Uh, we would probably then include the immediate generations after them and call that Islamic law. But then at some point, it stops being Islamic law and starts being what we'd call Muslim law. 
And so that's what uh, he's going to talk about a little bit more here, trying to just make the sense of the difference. Before going further, let me ask you a different question. How would you define something as Islamic architecture? And I'll give you the easy example will be a masjid, right? We'd probably call that Islamic architecture. Would you call it Islamic architecture if the designer is not a Muslim? What do y'all think? And there's no like right or wrong answer here. I think. Because okay, so honey, you say yes. Adil, you say yes. Aman, what do you say? I'm gonna say yes. Okay, so all three of you, why do you say yes? It's the style, okay. rather than who is making the art. So that's the interesting part. So we off like what features do we often associate with the masjid, especially looking from the outside? Arches. Okay, arches. Red. What else? The minaret. Yeah. Minaret. Dome. Okay. And where do we get the minaret from? We got it from pagan temples in Iraq. Wow, subhanAllah. And then where do we get the dome from? We Church. get the dome from Eastern Orthodox churches. And even in Chicago, if you go to those places where you still have a lot of Greeks and such, their buildings look exactly like masjids, except that they have crosses and they don't have minarets. And then the arches are coming from the Romans. Okay, so let me change it. Would you call the Sears Tower, aka Willis Tower, Islamic architecture? Because it was designed by a Muslim, and so is the John Hancock building. What do y'all think? No? Absolutely not. Okay. Bon, what do you think? I want to say no. And the reason I'm not going to, for me, style or like, I know this is weird coming from an artist, but style or aesthetic for me doesn't actually have anything to do with defining a building. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I go based on the purpose of the building. Okay. Um, and like the mosque I've gone to growing up, it's just a part we, it's just a place we rented out in an office building complex. Okay. Would you um, call that Islamic architecture? The architecture, no. Okay. What if you have a church that has been purchased and is now a masjid? Islamic architecture, yes or no? No. I have a question for you, Chaps. Yeah. I have yeah. a question for you. So now, when you say Islamic architecture, is there anything Islamically that makes a building? Like, it's just, like is there anything in the Quran that says this is how a building is and it's constitutes Islamic? So wouldn't that kind of cross into the cultural border? Because every culture has... Uh, their own architecture style and everything so like and even like how Arabs dress or like how Daisy's dress you know you got the thobe on the other one side you got like the long cape and well not the cape but like all the other cool stuff uh, but so can either be considered more Islamic than the other and in that same aspect when you look at architecture can one architecture be considered more Islamic than the other when there is nothing definite or concrete about what Islamic architecture is same thing as how what dressing like um, a Muslim is, you know? So, so, uh, so to answer your first question, is there anything like that in the Quran? No. Uh, in terms of Islamic law, things are usually defined more by their function than their style, right? And so whether you have a, a, a Muslim prayer space that looks like the photo behind me or it was a church that's been converted to a Muslim prayer space or an, uh, a traditionally an office space that's been converted to a prayer space. They're all Muslim prayer spaces, regardless of how they look. 
the recommendation in Islamic law is that if you have the means, beautify the space. And your beautification of the space would, would be very culturally specific. So something that would be considered beautiful in American architecture is going to be very different than something that would be considered beautiful in Turkish architecture versus Egyptian versus, versus Sub-Saharan Africa and so forth and so on, right? Uh, so ultimately things are defined more by their function than their aesthetic. And, and yeah, all the ideas, uh, uh, many, many of the ideas of what uh, Islam is constructed through are coming from other traditions. And then likewise, we made the point in a previous meeting that if we even speak about, about the West, the West is sort of like the big five traditions that contribute to forming the West are Rome, Greece, Rome, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. If you remove any one of those from the West, you would literally fundamentally alter the West. And so let's look then in terms of the difference between Islamic law and Muslim law. So uh, Adil, once you continue, oh yeah, another point I wanted to uh, draw attention to is this word fundamentalist fundamentalistic, when we're speaking in terms of popular culture and we're using the term fundamentalist, what do we mean? Like people who, like artists and like singers and all those people who lead. Fundamentalist? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, so usually when we speak of fundamentalists in, in terms of, of religion in our society, we're talking about people who are ultra strict if not radical. In terms of the academic study of religion, fundamentalist means you're skipping, you're ignoring the whole history of the tradition, which means I'm just reading this, the, I'm reading the Quran. What does this mean? It means X, Y, Z. Why? Because that's what it means, obviously, to me. It's not obvious to you, as opposed to the whole history of the interpretation of the text. So when you're skipping the history of the interpretation, then it becomes fundamentalist. Okay, having said that, uh, uh, I want you to begin with where it says not all legal systems. Not all legal systems or rules followed by Muslims are part of the Islamic tradition. It's not Islamic legal tradition. But at the same time, the boundaries of Islamic law are far more contested and negotiable than any fundamentalist, fundamentalistic, fundamentalist, fundamentalist or essentialist approach may be willing to admit. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. So we're talking about, you know, what is included, what is not. So a uh, simple question. Would you consider rulings by the prophet, peace be upon him, to be Islamic law? Easy question. Yeah. yeah. Would you consider rulings by uh, a judge in Saudi Arabia in 2020 to be Islamic law? Why not? Because why? he's in Saudi. And? I mean, aren't his rulings, in theory, derived all from Islam? But he's a secondary literature guy. Okay, that's <laughs> nothing to do with what we're saying here, but okay. Okay, let me change it. What about a judge in Iran in 2020? Islamic law? Yes or no? No? Honey, you're saying no? Why? I don't know. I'm thinking why. <laughs> I just know it's not. And I'm trying to think of a good enough reason. Okay. I mean, it's. 
All right, let's, let's change it. What about Egypt? So Iran and Saudi Arabia claim legitimacy from Islam. Egypt officially does not. So what do you think? A judge in a court in Egypt, Islamic law, yes or no? I think none of it is Islamic law because like you just said, those words, it derives its legitimacy from Islam. Okay. But it's not necessarily something that we can follow. Like it's not Islamic law. Okay. It, like I'm thinking it's, you know, you have a big circle and that's what it is. Islamic law is just a small circle and okay. the other law is just the big circle surrounding it. I don't know how to explain it, yeah, but that's, sure, sure. that's what okay. I'm thinking abstractly. So what if we move back a couple hundred years to the Ottoman Empire, a judge in the Ottoman Empire? Ottoman Empire is openly claiming to be an Islamic empire. What do you all think? Just like Iran and Saudi Arabia are today. I thought Islamic law ended after the generations uh, after the prophet died. Okay. So, so you're defining Islamic law according to the foundations, the foundational uh, generations. And that's part of the question here. Uh, because much of the scholarship of Islamic law continued from then all the way through to today. So let's change it. Suppose uh, in Chicago, you go to an Islamic religious scholar with a question about zakat. Okay. And they give you a legal opinion. Is that Islamic law? Well, if his opinion is based off of jurisprudence. No. Yes. You think no. Then, then how do we oh, I mean, know? yes, because he's going off of jurisprudence. Then yes, because okay. he's referring to a primary. So how's that different than the, the judge in Saudi Arabia or Iran? Who in theory is doing the same thing. Well, if it's jurisprudence, yeah, but I thought you were talking about like the question never been asked before and he's giving his... Oh, I, didn't, I didn't specify that much. I'm just talking about a judge over there. Then yeah, Islamic law, if he der derives from the fundamentalist. Fundamental okay, is. all right. Let's continue through. So uh, I'll continue reading. <laughs> yeah, where do I start? <laughs> okay, start with part of what makes okay. this. <clears throat> part of what makes this particular issue particularly challenging is that inescapably, it involves judgments as to legitimacy and authenticity with regard to what is Islamic and what is not necessarily so. So that's exactly what we've been debating just now. Okay, <laughs> continue. But more critically, the differentiation cannot be intelligibly, in, intelligibly addressed unless one takes full account of the epistemology and philosophy of Islamic jurisprudence or the rules of normal, norm, normality, normality, obligation, authority, and processes of inclusion and exclusion in Isla the Islamic legal practice and history. Okay, so, so let's, uh, let's uh, pull some points out from this sentence. So the differentiation, meaning between Islamic law and Muslim law, can't be addressed unless first you make sense of the whole philosophy of what makes Islamic law Islamic law. So normativity here is what do people standardly regard as Islamic law? And then what's the philosophy we can find under there? And then likewise, in addition to the question of normativity, so normativity is, okay, what are just basically the standard practices, the standard answers? And then obligation is, all right, you know, if the, if the Muslim scholar is saying, this is what you have to do for salvation, or this is what you're prevented from doing. So just before this, I was having a, I was having a, a meeting with, with an Islamic legal scholar 
on some research he's doing and he was talking about cryptocurrency right and using all kinds of terms i have no idea how to explain or what whatever it is that he was saying in english but the point is he's raising the question or he's exploring the question of these different types of currency are they islamically permitted so that's a big question in terms of islamic law is something permitted is something forbidden and then the authority is also going to be there you know why should i listen to you and so he's saying first to determine what is Islamic law, we got to look at the philosophy of the whole thing, and then what is said about authority and obligations and all that. All right, continue. Although Islamic law grew out of the normative teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and his disciples, the first generations of Muslim jurists borrowed and integrated legal practices from several sources, including Persia, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and other Roman provinces. Yemen and Arabia. Arabia. <laughs> in Jewish law. Okay. So, so we're saying even the earliest generations of Muslim legal scholars. So we're saying basically in the first hundred years, they're using all these different sources. Persian law. Mes where's Mesopotamia? Easy question. Anyone? Iraq. Iraq. Okay. I'm glad you pronounced Iraq correctly. Okay. And so, so uh, the law of... of uh, uh, laws that were used in Iraq, the laws used in Egypt, uh, the Roman provinces. When did this especially apply? When this Muslim empire was spreading into these other lands. The default law was whatever their local law was, except with some minor modifications on the big crimes like murder and fraud and stuff like that. Uh, otherwise, their default was to use that local law. And that's the first generations of Muslims. So we have the prophet himself, peace be upon him, where it's Quran. But even the prophet, peace be upon him, in Medina, when he didn't have ayahs telling him what to do, in many cases, his default was the Torah. Until an ayah came along and overrode what was in the Torah. And then when the Quran is completed, the entire uh, Torah then from our tradition expires. But then when you're moving uh, into the, the immediate generations after him, they're using the law of those particular lands to rule over those people. And then that starts getting integrated as Islamic law, as the foundations of Islamic law. All right, uh, I don't continue, but at the same time... But at the same time, many existing and actual customary or executive administrative practices pre prevalent in pre-modern Muslim societies and polities uh, polities were not integrated integrated or recognized as being part of or even consistent with Islamic law or Islamic normative values. Okay, so the next big point. So one big point is you have the Quran and the Prophet peace be upon him. And then you have the law that is being applied by the early Muslims over the new people that are in these Muslim lands. But then later revisions happen and those laws little by little through the generations start getting changed to fit more within the Quran and the Sunnah. So the default is here's your, here's your default law. But as more and more Muslims are, are converting into Islam, then you know, the Islamic law of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, starts to take over. And it's interesting because you also see this evolution in terms of the coins that are being made. First, you have the local coins. So imagine you have like a, a penny or a quarter or something. And then Muslims take over and it's still a penny or a quarter. But then 50 years from now, instead of in God we trust, it gets changed to la ilaha illallah. 
and then it gets changed further into a different language, so forth and so on. And so those evolutions are taking place over the course of generations. All right, uh, continue. Classic Muslim jurists. Classical Muslim jurists often denounce a particular set of customary practices, such as the tribal laws, this disinheriting women and or executive administrative practices, such as tax farming or ex excessive taxes known as mukhas, as inconsistent with legal Islamic legal principles. Okay, so that's the point that I was making, that in some cases, they would definitely change the laws, right? And so one of the big issues was laws regarding gender. And so we know that that was a law that was a practice that was even changed by the, uh, uh, from the tribes of Arabia, where women were, you know, the village is considered to be property, but in terms of inheriting, that was an issue in many, many locations. And, and so there were some laws that were changed immediately uh, that were considered to be violations of like the general rules of Islam. Okay, continue. Although such legal... Although such legal practices at times constituted part of the universal rules actually implemented and followed in certain Muslim societies, these practices, even if begrudging, begrudgingly tolerated as functional necessities, were never endowed with Islamic legitimacy and thus were not integrated nor normatively into the Islamic legal tradition. Okay, so back to the points you're all making about what is Islamic law. A lot of those things, the interesting thing is that a lot of those other legal traditions were originally part of Islamic law, but then were eventually removed as exceptions that are part of, of imperialism, as opposed to actually figuring out what Allah Ta'ala wants. And so part of the, the, the point of what is Islamic law, it's law that is trying to fulfill what Allah Ta'ala wants. In contrast to Muslim law, Muslim law would be laws that you have in different nations to rule over the people. And it's more focused on the things laws usually focused on, which is like conflict resolution, uh, stability in society, stuff like that. You see the difference? Islamic law effectively is trying to answer the question, what does Allah want in terms of action? What does Allah Ta'ala want us not to do in terms of our actions? Whereas Muslim law would be the law of the operation of a society. Just like, you know, codes in America for, think of all the codes that are involved for the room that you're in right now. There's codes regarding the fireproofness of the paint or the electrical circuitry or the street lights, you know, near your home. And so those are all part of the operations of a state that would be sort of Muslim law as opposed to Islamic law. It's not answering the question, what does Allah Ta'ala want from us? Okay, where are we, 758? Okay, let's do this next paragraph. Uh, Aman, you wanna read? Sure. We're distinguishing Islamic, right? Yeah. Okay. Distinguishing Islamic from Muslim law has only become more elusive and challenging in post-colonial modern-day Muslim societies. Most contemporary Muslim countries adopted either the French-based civil law system or some version of the British common law system and limited the application of Islamic law to personal law matters, particularly in the fields of inheritance and family law. Okay, so this is a, a really, really huge paragraph summing up so much of modern law in Muslim societies, that most law in Muslim-majority countries is a legacy of colonialism, and usually it's a legacy of French colonialism or British colonialism, meaning more often the law, the court you go to in a former French colony, their law is going to be informed by Napoleonic code. And more often than, law, more often than not, if you're going to a former British colony, their law in the courts 
is going to be of some variation of British common law. And, and then when does Islamic law get pulled in? Usually on things like inheritance. Not much more than that. And usually a question like, you know, how do I pray? Or, you know, how do I pay zakat? Those things aren't even going to make it to the court. And so this is what we're especially calling uh, uh, Islamic law. Okay, continue. Uh, in addition, in response to domestic political pressure, several Muslim countries in the 1970s and 1980s attempted to Islamize, Islamize, Islamize their legal systems by amending commercial or criminal laws in order to make them more consistent with purported Islamic legal doctrine. The fact remains, however, that the nature of the connection or relationship of any of these purportedly Islamically based or Islam, Islamized laws to the Islamic legal tradition remains debatable. As discussed further below. Yeah, so, so really quickly. So what's taking place in the 1970s and 1980s, you have the Iranian revolution. And then in Pakistan, you have Zia ul Haq who becomes the, the president of Pakistan. And he uh, wants to Islamize the, the, the whole country. And then you have other movements in other parts of the world. And so they try to bring in more Islamic law into the whole system. Things like death penalty, as well as outlawing interest and such. Um, Malaysia in the 1980s and 90s is an interesting example because they essentially set up <clears throat> two banking systems in their economy. One is the traditional banking system like we have here and another one was, was a joint risk interest-free banking system. And, and that was part of, of how they tried to, to operate to figure out how to make things more uh, Islamic. So there were those moves even in modern times trying to make things more in line with what we have in the Quran and Sunnah. Right, uh, Aman, continue. The fact remains. Wait, small side question if it's allowed. Say it again, small side question if it's allowed. It is allowed. Um, how does a bank make money if they don't charge interest? Mm -hmm. dun, dun, dun. So essentially, if you buy a house right now, mm -hmm. how does it, if you buy it on a mortgage, what happens? The bank buys it, and let's say you buy a house for, for $300,000, the bank buys it, and you pay them $500,000, right? Right. You know, 30-year, 60-year mortgage. Um, now, what you would do there is you and the bank co-own the house. And if the property value goes up, you both are sharing in the profit if you sell the house. Okay. So it's basically joint risk as opposed to just taking up a straight loan. When does it, so you're saying that's for Islamic banks or? So, I mean, a so-called attempt at, at, at interest-free financing, yeah. Then what about like car, loans like cars? Cause that thing only depreciates. Yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be very, very different, right? And so you'd have a different structure uh, for, for something like that where you become part of a co-op of let's say 10 people and little by little each of the 10 people is helping everyone else get a car you know in mosques in in america you know this is often what the aunties put together called the committee and i don't know if any of you have seen seen uh any of your moms do it they probably were part of it and and basically what happens is you have a group of like 20 aunties and each person puts in a certain amount of money and then you figure out who that money goes to for this month. And the next month, everybody puts in a certain amount of money that goes to someone else. 
But from a business standpoint, though, how does does it not work at all? Like the Islamic banks to give out loans for cars and personal loans, and your so so if we're speaking of a textbook avoidance of interest, yeah, it would uh, you wouldn't uh, have that as a as an opportunity. Instead, you become part of these co-ops. But I think on a grand scale, like how does that beat inflation? Is that like what yeah. you're asking? So inflation is one of the big questions, right? So. So some people will argue that if your interest rate is within the time value of money, then some will argue that that's okay. That's still a minority opinion, but I expect that opinion to grow. And the assumption there is inflation is continuously happening, that, that everything is getting more expensive. Okay, any other questions about this so far? All right, let's finish off this paragraph. Uh, let's see, uh, Aman, uh, after debatable, as discussed further below. The fact remains, however, oh, as discussed further below, even in the field of personal law, where the supremacy of Sharia law was supposedly never seriously challenged, leave alone the various highly politicized efforts at legal Islamization. Islamic legal doctrine was grafted onto what structurally and institutionally, as well as epistemologically, were legal systems borrowed and transplanted from the West, transplanted from the West. Practically in every Muslim country, the complex institutional structures and the process of the Islamic legal system, especially in the 19th century, were systematically dismantled and replaced not just by Western legal system, but more importantly, by the legal cultures of a number of Western colonial powers. Assertions of disembodied Islamic determinations are ruled in the modern age without the contextual legal processes, institutions, and epistemology, and in the absence of the legal cultures that generated these determinations in the first place, meant that the relationship between contemporary manifestations of Islamic law and the legal, classical legal tradition remained, to say the least, debatable. Okay, so, so what is he saying here? That we really gotta appreciate how thorough colonialism changed Muslim society. And one asked one way they changed Muslim society was to literally change the entire legal structure of these Muslim populations, right? Right down to how the courts operate. It's like they took the courts that were there, got rid of them, and put in a whole British system or whole British or whole French system. And then, I mean, he doesn't talk about it here, but even the whole educational system was completely transformed to the point that we are literally completely disconnected from, from what was the Islam prior to colonization. So I think it was last week or two weeks ago, we talked about you know, Islamic scholarship and some of the responses in India, Deoband and Aligarh and such. And, and so, so just about all Islamic law across the country for the past, um, or across the world, uh, uh, across the Muslim majority countries is actually colonial law. Even though many times they're given Arabic terms. Can I say something really quick? Sure, although I'm frightened by your grin, but go ahead. I just thought about every class I take it little always boils down to white people ruined it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, that's the, that's the era of education we're in right now, you know. No, no matter what class, even like uh, Sasan or Stata Sasan's Arabic class, it comes down to white people ruined it. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I mean, that's sort of what Khalid Abul Fadl is saying here. And if he's not saying that white people ruined it, he's basically saying white people changed everything. Yeah. And... And so this is part of the process of then rediscovering Islamic law, which then means 
The next natural topic is, okay, let's rebuild from the bottom. What is or the sources of Islamic law? That we will we'll start on next time, inshallah. Uh, anyone have any questions about anything? But yeah, it's, it does seem like, you know, every other day people say white people ruined it all. I mean, that's also the excuse we use for why our Muslim majority countries are all a mess, and there's only so far you can get with that excuse. Uh, I mean, the brain drain that is also taking place by all of us migrating here is probably a big part of it that as well. Alrighty, no questions, thoughts, reflections. And to the people who just joined us, uh, if you have any questions too, you're more than welcome. So, um, can you guys hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Okay. So it's my I, I I've come on to the class a few times, but not really here to um, consistently understand what all you guys are talking about. But my reflection on Islamic history or the war between the white man and the Muslim world. It's really the war between the Eastern white man and the Western white man, right? Because Explain. it's the Arabs and the Western European man and the Indians and the subcontinent just got pulled into their war. And even today, it's the Arabs versus the, the British, right? I mean, that's, that's one way to look at it, but it's probably, it's probably more, more complete to speak of, of, you know, a couple specific European nations trying to take over everything, right? Uh, especially, you know, the British and and uh, the, the French prior to that, you know, the Spanish and the Russians are part of it and everything, but yeah. Right, but the Turkish and the Ottomans and the Arabs and they still, when, they, when they're given the survey, they're always clicking the box of white, whereas we <laughs> click other or Indian or other, yeah. you know, Asian. So yes. it's always the white against the white. <laughs> 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 a fair assessment yeah but uh i mean when the british came along in terms of india i think that's probably fair to say that it was the whites against the browns what do you think yeah yeah or like the dutch but prior to that it was the arabs that were there conquering the indians well i mean so it was arabs not in <laughs> true indians that they conquered they just kicked the the, the arabs out and brought in the british rule <laughs> it's one way to work it if that works too yeah. okay fair enough a perspective. Yeah, I appreciate it. Anyone else? Any other thoughts or reflections? Alrighty, we'll stop right here then, inshallah, and then we'll continue with our journey of the white people and the Arabs, inshallah, uh, next week, inshallah. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nasta firuka, wa natubu ilaik. All right, may Allah tell you all, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.